Well, thanks for being here this morning. It's good to see all of you here on this uh, this Sunday morning, um, the first Sunday morning of the NFL season, um, I might add. So that's pretty exciting, if you're someone like me, at least. Um, so we are uh, we are still going through uh, the book of Daniel. Um, we started this here uh, a couple weeks ago, and um, clicker's not working. Um, and so um, we're kind of we're in the second chapter of the book of Daniel here. So we've had a couple of, of sermons um, that we've done the last couple weeks that have kind of set up where we're at now, what we're going to be talking about, and. Um, if you want to uh, go watch those, we actually have been recording them. We have a, a YouTube channel that we've got. So if that's like the way that you want to, that you like to digest sermons that you've missed is through YouTube, through um, watching, you know, me walk around and, and make hand motions and stuff, then you can have that opportunity and go check out the YouTube channel. Um, or else we, we also still have the uh, iTunes podcast or Spotify or whatever too. So uh, feel free to check out the sermons. that will help you kind of understand what's, what has been uh, going on because we've been talking a lot about um, exile. That was like the big point of the first sermon. And then last week, and this week's going to be kind of building on last week, but what we talked about last week is kind of Daniel's situation, uh, where he's at and how he's relating uh, to the culture around him, which is a, a different culture, in some respects a hostile culture, um, but one that he ha- has a goal of blessing, okay? And so, like, what we did last week was kind of we made the negative case. Like, what we, we, we don't need to uh, eat Babylonian food. That's kind of the way we talked about it. We don't need to kind of partake in what, what we're told by the culture around us, like, necessarily to excel, right? And, and inspe- it, but, but we should be, we're called to respect the culture that we're in as well, okay? We kind of talked about what it looks like for, those, for that to kind of play out, but this week I want to kind of make the positive case for what it looks like for us to, uh, to actually excel in the places that we're at through our worship uh, of Jesus. Okay, so that's going to be kind of, kind of the big uh, point of the sermon today. Now we're in Daniel and we're doing chapter 2, which is uh, like 49 verses. So we're not actually going to dive into every single verse. And, and what I'm going to do is actually just kind of read the first half of it. We'll walk through, I'll kind of break down what's taking place, and we'll take our application um, mostly off of that first half of the sermon, because the second half of the sermon kind of details a vision uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar has that actually has a lot of crossover with stuff we'll be talking about in a later vision in chapter 7. So we'll kind of talk about that um, when we get there, okay? So that way we don't have to have a two-hour sermon where we break down all 49 verses of, of Daniel. I thought you would appreciate that, um, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you guys would like that. I don't know. Hit me up after the sermon and let me know if you would have preferred us to do that, okay? Um, so anyway, um, if you want to turn and follow in your Bibles uh, along with me, um, it's Daniel chapter 2 starting in verse 1, um, and uh, we're going to go through uh, verse uh, 22 and 23, I believe. Okay, so you can follow along with me. I'm just going to read it off of, off of what I have here, okay? In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me my dream, what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. That escalated quickly. 
But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. And once more they, this is the enchanters, sorcerers, astrologers, replied, uh, let the king tell his servants his dream and we'll, we'll interpret it, okay? Like, quit, quit doing this weird thing, king. Then the king answered, I'm certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there's only one penalty for you. You've conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answer the king, there's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Okay, so pause. Let's just kind of break down what's happening so far. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar, he's king of Babylon. He's had a dream. It's really troubled him. And so what he does is he calls in his astrologers, enchanters, uh, sorcerers, magicians to come in. And, um, and but w- so normally, this would be a normal thing, right? The king has a dream. He calls them in and, and, and says, interpret this for me. Tell me what it means for the kingdom or whatever. We'll talk a, a little bit more about what the role of, of all of you know, astrology and stuff takes place in Babylon here in a little bit. But this is not a, an abnormal thing until the king tells them, but I'm not going to tell you what I actually dreamed, okay? You need to tell me what I dreamed, kind of as a show of, like, your ability to actually do this stuff, right? This is what you're paid to do, is to have visions and speak on behalf of the gods. Like, if that's actually what you're doing, then you should also be able to tell me what dream that I had, okay? And, the, and they're like, um, well, about that, that is actually not what we do. Um, and the king is, he's, so what he does is he kind of calls them out, basically. He kind of says, listen, if you can't do that, then how can I know that any interpretation that you'd have for me um, is actually valid, right? Are you actually speaking on behalf of the gods? Like if they can't get them to tell you what visions are taking place? Um, and, so, and so he's kind of questioning if, if they're just there to kind of like kind of come out and just kind of just say whatever comes to their mind to tell the king um, so that, you know, and the king goes off and does the thing and then they stay fat and happy because they, you know, the, the, they're, they're kind of telling the king whatever he wants to hear, right? This is kind of what he's, he's asking. Is this, is this actually what takes place? You're just kind of leeching off of me and just kind of saying whatever I want to hear and saying it's from the gods, right? And, and, and kind of giving me this unfalsifiable thing, like, right? Like, I have no way to verify whether or not what you're saying is actually from the gods or not, right? So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to check and see if that's the case, all right? I'm going to ask that question, all right? Well, and they can't do it, okay? And so, uh, since the, the king doesn't have Twitter to go and complain on, he decides to kill him instead, okay? And so, everyone's really worried, right? Because, like, the king is about to kill all these people who are supposed to be his advisors and kind of help him uh, to make decisions. And, and, so, and, and, and so he kind of sends out now for the decree to kill them all. No one's been able to do this. What's the point of having them around? It seems a little extreme to kill them, but that's what the king has decided to do, all right? Now, this includes Daniel and his friends. If you remember back to last week, um, Daniel and his friends have kind of, uh, they've been taken from Israel, and they've been put in this uh, place in the king's court, um, and they're learning kind of like the culture and the literature and the learning of the Babylonians um, so that they can be a part of 
of the king's court, okay? And, and, and this is kind of a, a thing that the, the Babylonians would do to kind of uh, pacify a nation that they had uh, taken over, right? It's kind of, if you get their young men who will be the leaders in their nation someday and you kind of make them Babylonian, then this country, you know, might stay Israel technically, but they'll be very loyal to us as a nation, all right? So that's why Daniel and his friends are in this position, but now they're lumped in with the wise men, um, the astrologers, magicians, uh, the ones who speak on behalf of the gods and counsel the king, they're lumped into this group now. And so they are now, um, like, their heads are on the chopping block as well. Okay? So l- let's keep going. Verse 14. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom intact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went in, and the king asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for them. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or as you might know them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We'll learn more about them uh, in the next chapter of of Daniel in chapter 3. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might be ex- not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven, and, and he said, and we'll get to what he says here in just a little bit, and we'll, we'll kind of, we'll end it here, okay? So basically, Daniel goes to the king. He, he's able to explain what the dream was and to interpret it for the king, and the king uh, praises God as a result. Um, he kind of, he has this access to the God who actually has the ability to explain dreams uh, for people that the other wise men and astrologers don't have. Okay, so Daniel prays, God gives him the interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar sees this and he rejoices and praises uh, Daniel's God as a result. Now the, the, the vision itself, I'll just explain it super quick. Like I said, we're going to really dive into what the vision means um, because it has a lot of overlap. It's very similar to another vision that happens in chapter 7, and so we're going to really dive in deep uh, that week. Okay? But basically, it's a vision of this statue of a man, and it's, it's made of four different types of material um, that are like kind of going up in levels, and each of these levels of material is supposed to uh, represent a different kingdom. All right, and and at the at the vi- so four different kingdoms are represented by the statue. A rock comes and hits the bottom of the statue. A rock that it says has not been cut up by human hands. It's kind of uh, supposed to make us see that this rock has been thrown at it by God Himself, and it makes the the it takes out the statue, and we're supposed to understand that God's kingdom kind of triumphs over these other four kingdoms. All right, it's it's a very uh, important um, vision, but. In order to give it its due, I want to actually like really dive in deep um, on its own here in chapter 7, especially because the vision of chapter 7 has a lot of crossover. It's a, it's a really similar type of vision, all right? Okay? Cool. So that's kind of our passage. That's, that's what takes place here. So let's kind of break down what just happened in, uh, in what we just talked about more here, okay? So first of all, it, it, it has a lot to do with, with magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and we probably hear that and we're like, ooh, like, weird, like, what's up with Nebuchadnezzar? Is he just really superstitious? Is he like one of those, one of those kings that like, you know, has, has, has these, uh, he's really into astrology or, or you know, he's kind of into some weird stuff to help him make decisions. And so he has these people kind of helping him out, um, right? This is a really distancing thing for us because we don't take astrology or, or, you know, fortune tellers or anything like that seriously in our culture. They're kind of a joke, 
right? Um, we've been watching the show, The Marvelous Miss Maisel, lately, and uh, there's like a, a running gag that one of the characters likes to go see this fortune teller a lot. And it's totally played off for laughs, and, and like we can tell that this fortune teller is conning the character, right? So like we don't have a high view of fortune telling in our, in our society, okay? But we kind of have to understand what's going on uh, in this passage for us to, you know, and, and what the role of astrology and enchanting and sorcery is in this culture. Because once we do, I actually think um, there's a lot of really good take away for us, okay? So, um, so, so fortune telling and stuff, it does not work in, in Babylon, in the ancient world, in the same way that we view it today, all right? So let me give you just a little bit more uh, a background info on how it functions. Um, this is from Tremper Longman. He's a, he's a commentator on the book of Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that disturbed him greatly, so he called his professionals, Okay, not psychologists, of course, but the ancient equivalents, the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers. These professionals had dream interpretation in their list of responsibilities. Indeed, these people were the political consultants of the day, trendspotters and religious gurus as well of the day. Okay, uh, another, another commentator says that the Babylonian sages were the guardians of the sacred traditional lore developed and preserved over centuries, covering natural history, astronomy, mathematics, medicine, myth, and chronicle. Much of this learning had a practical purpose. Okay, so instead of having psychologists and political consultants in that time period, uh, the king had a court full of astrologers and sorcerers who were supposed to be able to kind of read the tea leaves, li literally, Right? And, and, and help the king make wise decisions. And they did this by supposedly um, having kind of the revelation of, of the gods, the science of the day, to kind of give them wisdom so that they could go make, make right choices on what to do. And, and we don't need to get into what that looked like. It you know, involved reading the stars. It involved you know, cutting an animal open and reading the intestines and, and all sorts of weird stuff. Okay? But, but it was like their science of the day. Okay, so we shouldn't scoff at it because it, it had a practical purpose in the way that we also have um, p uh, political consultants or professionals that help guide our leaders as well, all right? Now, and especially in Babylon, this is like a really important thing. This type of trade in particular is really important, okay? Sometimes when you read your Bible, you'll see the Babylonians referred to as the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans are actually a certain like sect or tribe of Babylon, Okay, but they were so well known for um, their reliance on what the Chaldeans did, which was astrology and divination, is that they were actually known as Chaldeans. So Chaldeans, which refers to like astrologers and, and di divination and stuff, becomes synonymous with Babylon itself. It's such a big part of Babylonian culture to the point where we see that the king himself like relies on them specifically. Okay? Um, now, so it seems silly to us, but this is like, one of the dominant trades or industries or arts of the Babylonian culture. It's a really important thing in the culture. And, and for us to understand that is to kind of see it like, you know, maybe like steel is in Pittsburgh or, or tech is in Silicon Valley, right? Or, or political consulting or lobbying in Washington, D.C., all right? It, that's that's kind of how this functions in the society. So it makes sense that Daniel and his friends would have been trained in this as part of a classical, normal Babylonian education for anybody who's kind of going to be associated with, with, especially with government or leadership. All right? So it, ma it makes sense that, that this is what happens. Now, the big uh, takeaway for us in today's sermon, then, is that uh, 
Daniel excels in a dominant industry because of his reliance on God. Okay, so whatever, what the big thing in Babylon is, Daniel excels in it because he is worshiping God. He has access to the God of the whole universe, and that actually helps him to excel in a way that the other uh, um, astrologers or diviners or, or, or quote-unquote wise men of the society had no ability to do. And it's all because of his, his reliance on God. Now, why is this? Let's start with that prayer that Daniel, we kind of left you hanging there. Let's start with that prayer uh, that Daniel uh, prays before he goes and reveals the, wi- uh, the vision to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He says, praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises other, others up. Um, he gives wisdom to the wise. Uh, and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and I praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you, and you have made known to us the dream of the king. So Daniel knows that the success for his work, for his job, will come in, in going to God, because God is the one who gives wisdom and discernment and power to him. Okay? He has this big vision of God, right? He doesn't put God in a box. He doesn't see God as only able to help him in his private faith life. But he, he sees God as like God of the whole universe and able to help wi- with anything, including the stuff that's kind of part of his job, right? And so like, we, you know, we read the book of Daniel and there's a couple of episodes, right? And we assume that like, you know, this is all that Daniel ever did. But he probably did lots of stuff, right? Like this is, this is probably lots of time that he's going about his work. And for him to, to rely on God in such a big moment, I think, shows us that like it might not have even been the normal part of his work. But in this really important moment, um, he relies on God and it, it causes God to, ex- to be, his name to be made great in the society, specifically within this dominant industry or trade there. So, so what Daniel prays here and asking God to help him um, interpret the stream is not much different than saying, I thank and praise you, God, for you have given me wisdom and power to make that good business deal because you, you know, created people who, who make markets run. You, you, you oversee the resources in the world that we use. It's not much different than, than saying, I thank and praise you, God, that you've given me wisdom and power to put together that great ad campaign because you created people's minds and know what is going to um, uh, get them excited about things. Or, you know, uh, you, I, I thank and praise you, God, that you helped me to care well for that patient because you, you stitched that person together in their mother's womb. Right, you put them together. You know how their body works. So, of course, I will go to you for wisdom on how to care well for that person. Okay, to design that product because you're the one that invented uh, physics and you're the one who knows how engineering works. Right, to help that kid learn that thing I'm trying to teach them because you have wired their brain a certain way that, that causes them to learn things in a certain, certain way. Why wouldn't we go to God right, for, for help at excelling in whatever it is that we do when we have this big picture of God that Daniel has, that he's king and lord over the whole earth and all of creation. So of course, of course, he is going to be the one that helps us and gives us success in whatever, whatever it is that we're doing. Okay? And so because of all that, let's, t- let's get into some application here. Um, um, Christians should be able to excel in the dominant arts or trades of their society because of God's blessing. Okay? Because we, we worship the God of the whole earth, we should rely on God and, and believe that we can excel in the things that we do in our reliance upon him, in our, in our belief that he's going to help us out, okay? Excellence is not mutually exclusive with being a Christian, 
all right? Now, we're going to be, we're gonna be told this. So this is going to be the, the pressure on the culture is that our Christianity is supposed to be kept in, you know, in private. It's, it's, it's going to be something that we do on Sunday mornings here and maybe like one night a week or when we're with our Christian friends or if we want to sit down and read our Bible. But it should flow out and have an impact on us in the, the places that we go, all right? It, it should, should have an outflowing to us in our places of work. And that should help us to excel. We shouldn't see excellence as something that, that is not a part of what we're doing as Christians. So what are the dominant trades or arts in, 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 in Minneapolis-St. Paul, right? We, we have education is a big deal here. We have health. We have business. We have engineering. You know, all of these things are really important things in the Twin Cities. And I think that, like, we should have a view that it's, it's part of, like, our, our goal as Christians to, to excel in those different areas, just like Daniel is in what he's doing in Babylon. We shouldn't, we shouldn't see that as something that is, we're kept at arm's distance from. We kind of keep our, you know, keep in our own lane, and, and we don't necessarily see God as giving us uh, success in the, in the places that we're at um, and, and in, the, in the big places in society. Now, it's not the call for all Christians, right? Don't hear me saying that all Christians should be, like, at the top of their fields, right, or, or running companies or, or different things. But I think for some, for some Christians, this is going to be a specific vocation or calling for us to really excel in some, some field and to have, um, have our worship of Jesus be one of the main reasons why we're doing that, all right? Um, I think that God wants Christians to be leading voices um, at, at, at dominant trades or crafts in a society. Now, why is that? Why, why do I think that that's the case? And this kind of goes to our, our second point of application here, okay? Living our Christian virtues in public spaces will draw out the best versions of workers, of organizations, and workplace cultures. Okay, last week we talked about, um, and again, go, go back and, and watch this. I was trying to kind of paint the negative case here, right? But we talked about all these pressures that will be on us as Christians, um, in, and, and not, not just on Christians, on everyone in any workspace. There's all these different things that we're going to be kind of uh, pushing in on us, that we're going to be uh, pressured to believe um, that we, we need to do these things if we want to have success in whatever, whatever field that we're in. Things like working nonstop, hustle culture. The only way uh, to, to excel is if we're working, uh, we're working 24-7 basically, right? That's one thing that we're going to be taught to believe. We can't find success unless we're working our butts off. Um, to, to find our self-worth in our career. We're not going to find any satisfaction or happiness unless we, we locate all of our, our self-worth on our per job performance. And if we, we suck, then, then we suck as people, right? That's one thing we're going to be taught to believe, okay? Another thing is that we need to be boasting about ourselves. We, we can't have humility. Humility is actually going to cause us to be worse at our job. We need to be out there proclaiming how great we are to everyone around us because that's the main way that we're going to have to move up wherever we're working, okay? And, and that kind of ties into this other thing we're, we're called to believe that ambition is what matters. Moving up, making money, having a better title is, is the whole goal of why we're working. And anything else you might be doing, if it's not serving that goal of, of moving up the ladder or getting paid more, is not really worth doing because that's the, that's the main goal. Okay, these are things that we're, we're taught to believe. Hey, those are the values or the virtues of the society we live in. And Christian values and virtues are, are obviously at odds with those things in, in different ways to different degrees, right? But when we, um, when we try to live out those Christian values and virtues, we are going to, to bring out uh, the best in the places that we work. And we're still going to find success, even though we're, we're again, we're, we, we can't believe that lie that to find success we have to be working a certain way or, or, or adopting these certain values, okay? 
as much as we don't think it matters, our practices in our work, okay, the things that we do are going to shape us and it's going to impact the place that we work, which will impact, impact uh, people around us, right? Whatever industry that we're working in, if the values of a certain company are the things I just talked about, like people are just going to be uh, our numbers, right? Just dollar signs, right? Just, just wa- means to an end, right? That is not the Christian view of people, right? People should be cared for. People should be, should be seen as people, okay? And so when we live out our Christian values, we're going we're gonna to see people flourish. That's, that's, the, that's the hope. That's the goal. Think of it like this, all right? I'm t- I admit I'm taking this um, from Tim Keller. He, he put this really well in a, in a talk that he was giving to the British Parliament. But Jesus talks about how we are salt, in Matthew 5.13, this is, um, this is in the, in the uh, Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. Or Sorry, it's after the Beatitudes, but it's in the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus is talking about how you are the salt of the earth. You are, um, you are uh, supposed to be seen as salt in the world. Now, what, what does salt do? Um, especially in the ancient world, salt had uh, two main uh, things that it did for the food that it was being put on. One is to bring out a better flavor in it, right? It's a, it's a, it's a seasoning. It makes the, the meat that's being put on or whatever it's being put on taste better, right? And we still use salt today uh, to, to bring out the taste, to make our, our food taste better. But it also acts as a preservative, okay? It, it helps sustain the life of whatever, whatever meat it's being put on to kind of help that thing to, to stay good for longer, okay? So, so salt acts as a preservative and as a seasoning, and if it loses its saltiness, this is what Jesus is saying, then it kind of loses its effectiveness, okay? So it needs to remain salt. So you are salt in that you worship me. That makes you salty is what he's saying, okay? And, and you need to remain salty because when you do, you are acting as a preservative or you're going to be drawing out the best in whatever places that you're at, okay? Think about it, think about it like this. Um, the, the fruit of the Spirit, we're told, this is Galatians 5, is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Think about what love and kindness and goodness does in the healthcare system, right? For, for caring for people who, who, are, who need medical attention, when the people who are in charge of, 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 of making that care take place, when, when they are loving, when they're kind, when they're good, then those people will flourish. That's, that's the hope, right? Uh, imagine if that was the goal of all these, you know, Fortune 500 companies, right, or tech companies that are, that are blowing up, is, is love and kindness and goodness. And instead of making money, that was, that was their goal, was to see flourishing in a society. How good would that be? How much good would those companies be able to do if that's what they're trying to do? How important is, is patience and peace for a teacher, right? I can imagine, like, there are days where you would love to have patience and peace because that's what those kids need right they need patience and they need peace from the the educators that are that are are teaching them because that's the way that's going to help them to grow especially when they're being you know especially difficult to handle patience and peace are should be essential in caring for kids and that's what as a fruit of the spirit we're told okay what about faithfulness for an insurance provider okay faithfulness to stick uh, through and and through thick and thin with with people who who are relying on you to help them when in their time of need faithfulness for an insurance provider is so important what gentleness for a manager right at a coffee shop or at a McDonald's or something like that having gentleness for your employees how much better of a of a place to work how much better is your company going to be when the managers are gentle with their employees as opposed to treating them harshly Okay, what about, what about self-control for the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and saying, like, 
okay? We're, we're not going to be just about money. We're going to be about, or about trying to, to help people out with whatever we're doing, okay? Self-control, being able to say no to some things just because it might get us a little bit of extra money, right? Or how about joy for a social worker, right? I imagine there are days as a social worker where, where joy is needed just to get up, just to walk in the door in the morning, right? To have joy and hope. Okay? These, are, these are things that, that we, we get as Christians through the Holy Spirit that, that don't just benefit us. They flow out of us into the places we're at. Okay? Another example, this is of, of from Philippians 2, 3-4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Okay? What, what would humility do for our politics? Right? Like, wouldn't that help? <laughs> Don't you think that would make our politics in our country better is if we just had more humble politicians, right? Or, or, or whatever it is. Humility is in short supply in our society. But humility is something that's supposed to mark us out as Christians, being humble, okay? Now, I think many people would like to live this out, right? Many, many people that are non-Christians would, would read this list of stuff and they would say, yeah, it'd be good, I think, for me and for my company to, to value this stuff, okay? And, and I think a lot of times we want to give lip service to it too, right? Companies or, or, or workers want to give it. But when it comes up against those other things we're talking about, against money and success, these things are going to lose often, more often than not. Or, 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 or many times uh, it's not possible for, for people at a lower level who, who really want to see this type of stuff done in their company, but they don't have any resources or they can't devote time to some of that stuff because th their job involves them getting out and making more money for the company, or, or they, have, they feel like they have to be out there boasting or, or, or you know, working their butt off for something else as opposed to this stuff. They just don't have the time, the resources to it. It would be helpful in that situation to have someone who had those values, uh, who is living, who's walking out their faith in, in their place of work to, to make it so that there is time and resources available to people lower down to make this stuff happen, okay? So, so this is a, a way in which... Um, Christianity acts as salt in the society, okay? It makes it uh, last longer, and it makes it the best version of itself as well. If, if this was the, the worship of, 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 of more people in the society, just imagine how much more um, we'd be flourishing, right? And so Christianity acts as this salt. Uh, Christianity acts as this thing that preserves and brings out the best in, in our workplaces, and Daniel's kind of uh, been showing us this. Okay, I'm going to give you another example here, okay? This is, this is not necessarily of, of a v Christian virtue or value working out, but it is a way in which worship of God has brought out something that is, is absolutely bringing us out the best in society and acts as a preservative, for sure acts as a preservative. I think you'll understand here in a second. So I'm taking this from, um, from Rodney Stark. He's a sociologist of religion, and he's done a lot of research on, on the impact that Christianity has had in the West in particular, just kind of the way that Christianity has impacted the West and helped to, to make the Western world what it is today. And he, and he has this book called For the Glory of God where he examines like several different um, things, but he has a whole chapter on science, the role that Christianity played in the rise of modern Western science and how without Christianity, we would not, have, we would not be in the place that we're in now, all right? Um, oh, hold on. Let me read the first part of the quote here. So, so why were the scholastics and later Europeans interested in science at all? This is what he asks. Um, at first glance, that would seem a foolish question. Isn't the rise of science a normal aspect of cultural progress, of the rise of civilizations? Not at all. Many quite sophisticated societies did not generate communities or sci of scientists 
or produce a body of systematic theory and empirical observations that qualify science. And he actually goes through and examines um, three other cult you know, cultures and asks, you know, just to as a test case to kind of say, look, we did not see modern science rise in these cultures, even though these cultures were, you know, a lot of times we're supposed to look at Christianity as like a hindrance to scientific progress. But actually, the Christianity was not present in these societies, and, and we did not see science grow up in those. He, so he looks at just like Greek polyistic society where you had philosophy developed, but not science. Um, he looks at like Asian a atheistic societies, and then he kind of, he looks at it as Islamic societies as well. But then he comes to the West and the influence of Christianity on it, and he says, um, Christianity depicted God as a rational, responsive, dependable, and omnipotent being and the universe as his personal creation, thus having a rational, lawful, stable structure awaiting human comprehension. In contrast with the dominant religious and philosoph philosophical doctrines in the non-Christian world, Christians developed science because they believed it could be done and it should be done. Okay? So, so here we see worship of God leading to the preservation of society, right? Science has pres obviously preserved society in, in, in major ways, right? And it brings out the best in society as we, we learn about it, as we learn to study it well. And this all developed in the West, Rodney Stark is saying, because people were worshiping God and believed it was his world, all right? So, so um, again, we can't believe the, the, the lie that Christianity is a hindrance to excellence because we actually have lots of examples of, of places where it has brought out the best in the societies that it is, has been in, okay? So we have to push back against that lie, and, and we see that God puts his money where his mouth is. It's not just in Daniel. It's not just in this one story of Daniel, but we see this playing out throughout history, okay? And we need to believe that as we go into our workplaces or our own public spaces as well, all right? Now, here, here, here's our third point of application. Though. Here's something else we need to think about. I don't, I don't, I doubt that. Like, I'm talking to a room of mostly millennials here who are notorious workaholics who love to work, right? I'm sure I don't need to push too hard to get you uh, to agree that excellence is something that's important, right? I'm sure you're like, that's right. Keep, keep it up, Joel. I already believe that excellence in my work is really important, or whatever I do, my vo my vocation, whether it's mothering or you know, you know, staying home with kids or whatever. Whatever it is that you do, excellence is, is important. I don't think that, that that's, um, that's too hard for you. But the, the, the way that I am distinguishing this is I'm talking about excellence through worship of Jesus, okay? Not just excellence for excellence's sake or to, to make us look better, right? To go back to some of those values I talked about that we're, we're, we're pressured to believe in the society, but excellence because of worship of Jesus, Okay? And so, so our third point of application is make glorifying Jesus the goal of our excellence. Okay? Because this is what happens in Daniel, we see. Remember, um, in Daniel, he goes, he worships God. But it's not just that, that Nebuchadnezzar has his dream interpreted now. Nebuchadnezzar um, calls uh, this, he, he, he gives this, this great praise for the God of Daniel as a result of this. He says, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then the king Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a re revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Okay, So it brings uh, glory to the name of the creator, the one who has, has made it possible 
um, through, through, their, through worship of him for the dream to be interpreted. And this should be our goal, is to just worship God and expect that we will act as salt, okay? So to go back to the salt analogy, right? This is like a responsibility. I'm, I'm definitely giving you responsibility here, okay? But there's also some relief to it, too. I'm not telling you, like, you need to go out and work, work your butts off. And if this is not happening, well, something must be wrong, Okay? Our goal isn't necessarily excellence, although excellence will take place. It's worship of Jesus. And when we're worshiping Jesus, we will naturally just be made saltier, more and more salty, right? Not in the other way of salty, but right? But like <laughs> in, a, right? in, in, in like the way of salty that I'm talking about, we will be made more and more salty, okay? Salt doesn't have to think about being salt, right? It just is salt, right? Salt does not need to think about preserving the, the, the meat that it's on or bringing out the best flavor. It just does what it does by being salt. And when we worship Jesus, we just become salt in the places that we're at. Okay, so be thoughtful about this, right? Put thought into it, put prayer into it, put meditation into it, but just expect as you go out and you worship Jesus, right, and you do it like unashamedly in the place that you're at, you are going to bring out the best in your society or in the place of work that you're in, all right? Um, this should be a, a fruit of what we do in where we go. And this is really, this is like our goal as a church, right? Like if we go to our vision, we're seeing people, our city, and the world made new in Christ our Savior and King. Our goal is to see our city and the world and the people in it made new, right? To, to experience transformation, to be made new, to flourish. This is the goal of the gospel, we think. It's not, not just come and save us, but to also redeem creation around us, okay? That's, that's, the, that's the goal, redeeming creation, redeeming um, the, the, the world itself. That's God's goal, and he does it by making people new as they come to worship Jesus, as they're forgiven of their sin, um, and as they are transformed in, the, in their worship of Jesus. And so that's our goal as a church, right? We have this goal of, of seeing people worship uh, Jesus and then go out and, and be excellent in the places they're at so that newness and flourishing can come through the worship of Jesus in them and glory will be oh, brought back to God, okay? Glor uh, listen to the full thing. We want to glorify God by seeing people are seeing the world made new, okay? So that's, that's our call uh, for you this week. And this is what Daniel shows us when we really dig in is Daniel is living out this thing that we as a church really want to see happen, okay? So, so let's close, as we always do, uh, with communion. Now, in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, um, Paul actually says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul's saying another way that we proclaim um, Christ crucified on our behalf is just by taking communion every week. Okay, we proclaim it to ourselves, we proclaim it to the people around us, and, and we proclaim it to the, the rest of the world around us as well that, that, re, that knows we're a church that's meeting here, that, that worships Jesus, the, the one who's crucified on our behalf. So, so come up, take communion today, and, 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 and proclaim the Lord's death uh, in that. All right? I'm going to pray, and then the worship team will come back up. Father, we, we thank you that you have... Um, you have set us apart through our worship of you, and, and not, just in a, not just in a way that, that sets us apart or makes us different um, to retain us for yourself, but in a way that, that causes us to truly uh, make the society around us flourish, to, to really benefit uh, the, the workplaces that we're in, the neighborhood that, that we live in, uh, and the city that we live in, God. We, we thank you that you have that goal as well and that you give us the ability and the tools to do it in, as we just worship you. God, I pray that you would, you would help us to do that well. Help us to be thoughtful um, as individuals. Help us to be thoughtful as a church in how we can bless the society that we're in 
through our worship of you, God, because that is our goal, that is our heart. Uh, We pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.